Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we get into the topic at hand, I would like to revisit the movie Forrest Gump, specifically Forrest's shrimp boat buddy, Benjamin Buford Blue, uh, but you can just call him Bubba. He knew all the ways one could serve up shrimp. You can barbecue it, boil it, brawl it, bake it, saute it, days on shrimp kebabs, shrimp creole, shrimp gumbo, pan fried, deep fried, stir fried. There's pineapple shrimp, lemon shrimp, coconut shrimp, pepper shrimp, shrimp soup, shrimp stew, shrimp salad, shrimp and potatoes, shrimp burger, shrimp sandwich. That's that's about it. What Bubba could do for shrimp, other people can do for punk. Punk rock comes in as many different varieties as shrimp does. Let's see, we got hardcore punk, ska punk, cyberpunk, synth punk, anarcho punk. Then we got cow punk, gypsy punk, Christian punk, Celtic punk. There's art punk, garage punk, glam punk, crust punk, horror punk, street punk, melodic punk, afro punk, skate punk, Chicano punk, folk punk, and troll punk. Although I'm not really sure what that is. There's also punk blues, punk pathetique, punk metal. Riot Girl, Queer Core, Rap Core, Straight Edge, Emo, and Oi. And then we can get into all sorts of subgenres. Just looking at hardcore punk, that includes Bent Edge, Death Core, Porno Grind, Screamo, Power Violence, Positive Hardcore, Nardcore, Nintendo Core, and that's about all I know about that. Most of these punk derivatives are pretty niche and none of them have a hope in hell of growing beyond a cult following. But a few have blown up into worldwide phenomenons, including a version that I haven't mentioned, which remains one of the most popular forms of punk rock of all time. This is the history of pop punk, part one. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. One of the most popular pop-punk bands of all time, Blink-182, with all the small things from their 1999 album, Enema of the State, which has sold at least 15 million copies worldwide. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and on this program, we're going to look at how the original punk rock of the 1970s, with its angry lyrics laid over two chords played very fast, mutated into the kind of music championed by groups like Blink-182. Now, when you think about it, 
pop punk should be a paradoxical juxtaposition, an oxymoron, just like, uh, well, jumbo shrimp. When punk was born in the 1970s, it was designed to be the enemy, the destroyer of pop music. Okay, this, this needs to be put into context. Back when punk was brewing between 1974 and 1976, the vast majority of people got almost all their music from AM Top 40 radio. Yes, there were some FM stations that played rock and album cuts, but they were nowhere near as popular as the AM stations were. Now, let me just give you an example of the kind of music people were hearing on the radio in 1974. This was a number one hit on the singles chart around the world. Oh, God. If you were living in New York, which was an urban hell at the time, or in London, where youth unemployment was out of control, this wasn't the kind of music that spoke to you. Punk rose up at least partly because of the awful music on the radio. The mission was to obliterate that schmaltzy, wimpy, sentimental crap. But hang on, let's take a very close listen to the music of one of the great pioneering punk bands, the Ramones. Yes, they wore leather jackets and torn jeans and played really fast and really loud. But if you look beyond that, you'll see that the Ramones were actually playing pop songs, just their version of pop. The pop radio of the 1960s was a huge influence on the Ramones. All the elements and all the sensibilities were there. They just had a different way of spitting the classic pop song. And the Ramones never made a secret of any of this. In fact, in addition to writing their own material, they covered all kinds of 60s pop songs, Needles and Pins, which was co-written by Sonny Bono of Sonny and Cher. They covered Surfin' Bird by The Trashman, a goofy hit from 1963. California Sun, a 1960 song by an R&B singer named Joe Jones. There was Do You Wanna Dance, a 1958 hit by Bobby Freeman. And a song called Let's Dance by Chris Montez was a big hit in 1962. And then there's this from 1980. It's the Ramones covering the great girl group, the Ronettes, and their 1963 hit, Baby I Love You. The Ramones, definitely a punk band, but under the surface, they were also very much a pop band. You just gotta know what to listen for. Other punk bands back in the day were... Uh, well, you know, punky in the typical sense. The original punks were fast and loud and often very political and socially aware. And they professed to hate much about the previous generation of bands. But even they had their poppier moments. The Sex Pistols were known to cover the Monkees from time to time. Maybe that was done ironically, or maybe they really did like the Monkees. But then there were groups like the Ramones that had no problem with the Beatles or the Beach Boys or Motown or 60s girl groups. And while many of those early angry punk bands had burned themselves out, there was a whole group of post-punk bands that took what the Ramones were doing and refined it. I mean, melody and pop-style songwriting elements were very much part of the whole new wave thing. But there were also participants in the original punk scene that liked a good tune. I'll give you an example. The Jam. They covered everything from old Stacks and Motown records to the Kinks to the original Batman theme. 
and they had some big hits of their own on the pop charts. The Jam. Their attitude was definitely influenced by the punk scene, but their sound was very pop. Now, let's stop here for a second and get something straight. There is nothing wrong with writing a pop song. It doesn't mean you're writing a song for the money or for the commercial success and that you're selling it to the man. And it doesn't necessarily mean you want to be popular. You can write songs with pop elements, you know, melody, song structure, sing-along choruses, but still keep your subculture image and appeal. Your songs are short and punchy, probably less than four minutes long, maybe even less than three minutes long. And if you want to get technical, are constructed in the typical verse-chorus-verse way using a 32-bar structure, just like a million mainstream pop hits. It's just that your brand of pop, the musical arrangements, the lyrics, your image, and so on, may be, well, left of center for mainstream audiences. So to say that an artist writes using pop sensibilities is not an insult. It's simply a way of describing how their songs sound and how they're constructed. Another example from the early punk rock days. In 1979, the Buzzcocks, one of Manchester's original punk bands, released an album called Singles Going Steady. This was a compilation of some previously released singles, and it's a masterclass on how you can be punk and pop at the same time. The Buzzcocks, originally a single from 1977, and then reissued on Singles Going Steady in 1979. That's What Do I Get? And the Buzzcocks weren't the only band working with this blend. We can go back and look at the undertones, Stiff Little Fingers, the Vibrators. And then there was this group, fronted by an acolyte of the Sex Pistols. William Broad followed the Pistols everywhere. He was deep into the original punk rock scene. Eventually, William Broad changed his name to Billy Idol and formed a band called Generation X. And within a few years, they were releasing pop songs like this. The original version of Dancing With Myself. Billy Idol did it first when he was part of Generation X, although they were known as Gen X by the time that song came out in the fall of 1980. He later had the song remixed and re-released when he went solo. A dancey, poppy, punk song from a guy who used to hang around with Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious. So we're starting to see how punk and pop could easily coexist. When we come back, we'll look at a new mutation that should have never worked, yet it did. We are looking at the history of pop punk, one of the most successful and popular forms of music in the world of alt-rock today. On part one here, we're laying down the groundwork for the kind of music that would bust out in the 1990s and beyond. The direct descendant of the hard, fast, and loud punk of the 1970s was hardcore, an American invention that tried to amp things up so that the music was even harder, faster, and louder than punk. Yet, even with all that testosterone pumping through the bands and the mosh pit, there was still the temptation to sing a fun song. Black Flag was one of the most intense hardcore bands of the early 80s. Yet they could also do something like this. Why go into the 
the outside world at all. It's such a pride. That's Black Flag from 1982. Henry Rollins on vocals by this time with a fun, dumb song called TV Party. Another band we have to acknowledge is Bad Religion. Impeccable hardcore credentials. Lots of politics, social awareness, and rage. But at the same time, they gave everything a smooth edge with melodic vocals and even harmonies. Hardcore, but, and here's that phrase again, pop sensibilities. This is a song from 1982. It starts and finishes very hardcore, but there's a breakdown in the center where, well, you'll hear it. Bad Religion with We're Only Gonna Die, a hardcore song with a little pop sandwiched in the middle. Another important group of the era was The Descendants. They were from Manhattan Beach, which is in the southwest part of Los Angeles. They were very hardcore at first, but eventually evolved into something unique. Again, the answer to standing out from the crowd was more melody. In 1982, they released a record called Milo Goes to College, 15 songs over in just 22 minutes. Pretty aggressive stuff. And yet... see what I mean by the use of melody and harmonies? When that song, which is called Suburban Home, by the way, came out in 1982, it was hugely radical for American punks. You just did not sing like that. I mean, it just wasn't done. A group that took things even further was Husker Du, the hardcore band from Minneapolis. Insanely loud, very fast, but more than any other band on the scene, they showed that punk and melody could live in harmony. But that's what makes Husker Du so important in the development of alt-rock. If we have to zero in on one album, it would be their 1984 double record Zen Arcade. The group thought hardcore had hit a wall, so it was time to try different things. The music was fast and aggressive, but it was also loaded with nuance. And it was a concept album, something that punk and hardcore bands were just not supposed to do. Concept albums were considered to be extremely uncool at the time, something best left to Pink Floyd and bands of that ilk. But Husker Du broke through that rigid, immovable, hardcore dogma. Zen Arcade tells the story of a boy who runs away from an abusive home, only to discover that the outside world was worse than what he'd left. For example, let me play a song called Pink Turns to Blue. Our boy has joined the military, dropped out to become a Hare Krishna, finds a girl only to lose her to drugs. And that's what this song is all about. Take note of the pop elements used to create this hardcore punk song. Husker Du from 1984's Zen Arcade album and Pink Turns to Blue. Next up, a trip back to California where punk bands were conducting new experiments with melody, harmonies, and arrangements. This is part one of the history of pop punk, one of the most popular forms of alt-rock in the last 25 years. And we have a little more deep background to cover. Maybe it was the weather, maybe it was the drugs or something. But California bands decided not to be so serious when it came to punk rock after a while. 
This music started to get coverage in a new publication based out of San Francisco called Maximum Rock and Roll. When writing about Social Distortion or The Vandals or any number of melodic punk bands, the magazine began to throw around the term pop punk. Now, let's focus on Social Distortion for a second. In 1983, they released a debut album called Mummy's Little Monster, and it featured a single called Another State of Mind. If you listen closely, you can pick out the same elements that would later surface in the music of bands like Green Day and The Offspring. We'll call that proto-pop punk from Social Distortion, another state of mind from 1983. Some of the other proto-pop punks thought it was time to lighten up and inject some humor into the whole West Coast punk scene. And this is where we find the Vandals, who were formed in Huntington Beach in 1980. They loved their punk, but they also just couldn't take themselves too seriously. Maybe it was time to get a little goofy. For example, why not cover this song from the movie Grease? The Vandals from 1990 and Summer Lovin'. The album was called Fear of a Punk Planet and was produced by Bob Casale, the keyboardist for Devo. By the way, Kurt Cobain was a fan of The Vandals, and so is Eddie Vedder. 1992 seemed to be some kind of a turning point, a year when this emerging pop-punk thing started to gain some wider attention. That summer, Spin Magazine published an article called California Dreaming. It mentioned a bunch of these melodic punk bands, some of which were signed to a Bay Area indie label called Lookout Records. Among the groups was a trio from the East Bay who had a couple of albums already, and they were called Green Day. And this was one of the songs they were playing at the time. That's the original version, the pre-Dookie version, of Welcome to Paradise. Pop-punk exploded in popularity throughout the 1990s. But how? And why? And who was behind all this music? Those are just some of the things that we'll talk about on part two of this look at the history of pop-punk. Until then, don't forget about all the ongoing history podcasts that you can get through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the other platforms. There are hundreds, and they're all free. Just download and go. Subscribe for faster service, and please rate and recommend if you can. That helps a lot. If you're looking for playlists for these shows, check my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. Just enter ongoing history in the search field, and everything will pop up. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And should you have any specific questions or comments, send them to alan at alancross.ca. Part two of the history of pop punk next time. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.